Hey, Grandma Dickie, you're going to have to let go of him. I'm sorry. She always finds some handsome man and starts holding on to him. She, she takes seriously that, that admonition to greet one another with a holy kiss. So when you see her coming, Banaka. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 14. We are, are getting close to the end, and, and this is one of my absolute favorite chapters. But for those of you, summer's been crazy. We've been all been traveling around, and so I just kind of want to bring us up to speed on what we've looked at prior to d- diving in here. So in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has been making one point and one point only, and that is the gospel message. He's writing to the church in Rome, a church that's made up of or composed of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And he's saying, listen, the gospel message is for all of us, because here's the reality. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's righteous standard. None of us can stand before God and say, I've done it right. And... None of us can possibly do enough good things to earn our righteous standing with God. We can't be good enough to make him say, come on into heaven. But what we are unable to do for ourselves, God has done for us in the, in the form of Jesus Christ. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for us, paying ultimately the, the blood guilt offering that we had earned for ourselves because of our sins. He paid it on the cross so that when we stand before God, we are not a sinner separated from our father because of our sin. Rather, we are, we are declared to be a saint. We are not some prodigal. These prodigals can come home and he wraps his arm around us and say, welcome home. Jesus has done all of us. And that's the gospel message. And that's the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then in chapter 12, Paul transitions into now, how should we live in, in light of the gospel message? And so he said in the very beginning of of Romans chapter 12, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is our good, proper spiritual act of worship. And then over the course of the last couple of chapters, he's been unpacking different aspects of what that looks like. The spiritual gifts that God has entrusted to you through his Holy Spirit, whom he imparted in you when you accepted Christ into your heart. Those are not simply for you to use for yourself. Use those to build up the body of Christ. Use those to reach those outside of the walls of the church. And when it comes to rulers and those in authority over us, submit to those in authority. Because at the end of the day, God has instituted all authority and they will have to give an account for their leadership. But as his representatives, we are called to submit to the laws of the land, to submit to those who have been placed in authority over us. And then last week, Lee looked at uh, in chapter 13, where Paul talks about the fact that we are to live a life that is marked by love. Jesus put it this way. This is how the world will know you're my disciples, by the way you love one another. Your love will ultimately be the declarative act that shows everybody that you're one of my disciples. And Paul put it this way at the end of, of Romans chapter 13. He said the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Hey, Mike, can you bring me down just a little bit? Thank you, sir. And so 
That is the admonition that Paul gives to all of the Roman church and to all of us. Love one another. Seek to build one another up rather than tearing one another down. However, he recognizes, even as he's probably speaking those words, and there's the, the, his scribe is trying to write this down, he recognizes that within the Roman church, that's probably easier said than done. Because the reality is, you have got a church that's composed of totally disparate people. You've got slaves and their masters who under Jesus Christ are all of a sudden equals, worshiping together. Talk about awkward. You've got men and women in a society that didn't often interact, worshiping together. Room for awkwardness. And most importantly, probably the greatest thing that he recognizes as awkward is you've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who have come from completely different backgrounds, who have completely different understandings of what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to submit their lives to God, who are all of a sudden thrust together, interacting with one another, and there is going to be conflict because they all would admit that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and none come to the Father except through him. That's fine. We're saved by grace. We all agree. But that's where the agreements stop. And that's where the disagreements begin. Because you have a bunch of Jewish Christians who have been raised under the Mosaic Law, raised under the understanding that their relationship with God is dictated, is, is impacted by the way that they interact with their Father in heaven, by the choices that they make here. And they've been given all of these laws to help structure their life. They've grown up with them. They've had them drummed into their head. So you have the kosher laws that say that you may not eat any animal whose lifeblood is still in it. So that animals, when they were slaughtered to be prepared to eat, had to be slaughtered in a proper way so that they would be kosher. And if they were not, or if you weren't sure if it was kosher, a Jewish person would say, I'm not touching that meat. Whereas the Gentiles are like, what's the problem? It's just meat. It has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on your relationship with God. I thought Jesus was everything. Or you had the, the Jewish people who recognize that the Sabbath is utterly important. That they are marked as people who keep the Sabbath. And this was a major issue. It was one of the Ten Commandments. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. And so they understood that holy day to start at sundown on Friday evening and end at sundown on Saturday, uh, Saturday evening. But then you have the Gentile Christians who are going, well, wait a minute, didn't Jesus rise from the dead on Sunday? Maybe we should make that our holy day because that, we call it the Lord's Day. And so they're wanting to worship Jesus and God on a Sunday. And you've got the Gentiles who are wanting to do it on the Sabbath day. And it's like, well, which one do we do? How do we figure this out? You've also got a litany of Jewish holidays. The Passover, Yom Kippur, and all of these other feast days that you would gather together to celebrate. Well, are all... Christians expected to keep all of those Jewish feast days? And how about for the Gentiles? I mean, because they've got a whole lot of holidays that they kept. And true, they have pagan roots. But are they not allowed to at least gather together with family? Kind of like, are we not allowed to gather together on Halloween because it's got pagan roots? I have some friends that go even further. They won't even celebrate Easter or Christmas because there are pagan roots even in that. There are some things that we've pulled from that, that have just infiltrated. And so we're like, we won't touch any of it because it's not scriptural. And it's like, okay, so how do we figure this out? You've got all of these people from different walks of life trying to worship God together, trying to interact with one another, even some, in some instances marrying one another. 
And how do we figure that out? To which Paul then transitions right out of this declaration that we should love one another, that we should love our neighbor and love does no harm to one another. He then transitions into, well, how do we figure out all of these gray areas, these disputable matters, the things that Scripture does not speak directly to? And so he says this. I'm just going to read all of Romans 14, and then we're going to go back through and we're going to unpack it a bit. He says, Except one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Well, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God as they're eating. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live... We live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing... Nothing is unclean in itself. And by unclean, by the way, this is, this is the Jewish language for when something was set apart or sanctified and purified to be honoring to God, it could not be used for other common things. Another word for unclean would be common or sullied. You don't use one pot to kind of cook your dinner in and then also go and worship God with it. That was kind of anathema for a Jewish person. So they would have these ceremonial washings to cleanse things. And once you were clean, you can't touch a dead body. Otherwise, that makes you unclean. And then you have to ritually purify yourself again. These were things that the Jews did that God instituted to remind them, hey, God is holy. He is set apart. He is other. You are called to be holy as well. And all of these kind of things would make them unclean. And in their mind, they're like, I'm not touching it because it would make me unclean. Paul is saying, listen, In Christ, because of what Christ has done, because his blood has been shed and washed over us, and I totally lost my place. Where was I? Ah, 14. Thank you. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone actually regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. But if if your brother or sister is distressed... Because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. 
Therefore, don't let what you know to be good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Man, that's, this is one of my very, very favorite passages. I come back to it again and again. And what's so difficult for me today is there's so many different directions we could go, and we're not going to be able to hit all of them. But let's just kind of try to go back through this and, and follow Paul's train of thought, and then we'll kind of unpack it for how does this impact us? What is he saying to us today? He begins in the, with the statement in verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And you might be saying, well, what kind of disputable matters are we talking about? What is a disputable matter? It's a gray area. Those areas that Scripture does not specifically speak to in light of the cross. So, you know, things for them were the kosher laws. Are those things still intact? Do those things still impact and influence, and are they still in force for a Jewish Christian or any Christian who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Or all of the holy days, that not only the Sabbath, but at the Passover, Yom Kippur, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles, all that kind of stuff. Are we still expected to keep it? But we, in the 21st century, have other gray areas that keep cropping up. And again, a gray area is anything that Scripture doesn't speak to directly. And so I, I've got a list of them here. And, and, you know, some of these are more just kind of, what, what do we think about them? But others of them are really core issues that have separated entire church bodies because of it. So for one, is it simple for someone, someone to smoke, right? And in each of these that I read, you're going to have a knee-jerk reaction based upon where you grew up, what your experiences were in your family, maybe your past church experiences and what you've been taught. We're all going to have knee-jerk reactions one way or the other. But is it sinful for someone to smoke? And we're told to avoid drunkenness. But is it wrong for us to have any alcohol, as some people have concluded? Is it wrong for believers to get tattoos or to go see R-rated movies? Is it okay for us to go trick-or-treating on Halloween, even though that holiday has pagan roots? And what about the way that we worship? I mean, because those things are more preference issues. I will say that the alcohol issue, more than anyone, I've actually seen divide churches and actually push people away from the church. There are families who feel uncomfortable to be in certain churches where alcohol is kind of flowing freely because they feel like either they have alcoholism in their past and it's like, are you kidding me that you don't see, whatever you see? So you can see that that's one of them. But when we come to the areas of the worship and theological differences, this is really where we get into those gray issues that can have seismic impact in a church that can utterly divide it. So we're talking about, you know, countless churches throughout the generations have had questions about worship. Is it okay? I, I went to a church 
um, up in Sacramento. And it was a big church. It was fun. It was vibrant. There were lots of young people there. And they had the, the flashing lights going and they had the fog machines going and they had the rock music going. And I'm going, this isn't a worship service. This is a rock concert. What on earth? And I know that some of you in here feel like, man, the music is too loud. Why don't you turn it down? Why don't we have a pipe organ or a piano and just, why can't we worship with the hymns? Those were anointed by the Holy Spirit. I don't know who wrote these worship songs that we're currently singing. And sometimes, often actually, entire churches can be divided and divisive over the worship music, the style, the volume, and all of that kind of stuff. So at what point does worship music or volume, either help or hinder the body of Christ to have unity and love. We might talk about um, the, the way that we are baptized. Because I know that there are many people in the church who are baptized as infants. Whereas we at Lighthouse have, have kind of said, you know, we feel like baptism is one of those declarations that somebody needs to make when they have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. It's a public declaration of their internal decision. So therefore, we are going to choose to do baptism when somebody is an adult, not as an infant. We're going to do parent dedication and baby dedications when they're young. And, and some people, some churches will go, well, sprinkling is, is sufficient. And other people go, no, full immersion because Jesus went under the water, so you have to have full immersion. And it's like, is this a matter to divide a church about? And while we might be going, probably not, there are some churches that have divided. There are entire denominations that have basically come off of baptism. Whether or not, it, it, when it should happen, how it should happen, and whether if somebody has been baptized once, if they should be baptized again later on. Some people who say, absolutely not, and other people say, absolutely. What are you thinking? Yes. Other churches divide or are divisive over what translation you should use of the Bible. Which is the holy or the nearly inspired version, right? So NIV, King James Version, NASB, NRSB, there's all of these different translations and different churches have different perspectives on it. These are just some, just a few of the gray areas that can begin to percolate into a community and begin to separate the body of Christ, that we can begin to bicker. I can't tell you how many times I've gone online and you'll have one preacher who's, who's you know, it's a great message, it's a wonderful core message, the gospel is being preached, but that person either insinuates about um, predestination because they're kind of from a reformed perspective or you have somebody else who's more you know not and so they're they're more about God's love and stuff and, they, and they're not really focused on the predestination aspect and you start getting this bickering about whether or not God has complete foreknowledge and is ultimately dictating everything that goes or whether we have complete free will and when somebody who is outside of the church looks at that thread and begins to see how Christ followers begin to get fixated on family arguments about questionable theological discussions where there are gray areas and it's not black and white on either side, they get utterly turned off. They're like, what on earth would I want to be part of that? I've already got dysfunction in my family. Why would I want to be part of another dysfunctional family? Right? But these are the kind of gray areas that can utterly divide people and can become divisive. Divisive, however you want to say it. Even the way you pronounce your words can be divisive, <laughs> doggone it. So accept him whose faith is weak without quarreling over divisive matters. 
Now, we might say, well, what do you mean whose faith is weak? I think that Paul here is actually probably pointing to the Jewish Christians. Because these are the ones who have been trained up, raised up in their families of origin, have been raised up in their, their synagogues to utterly let, lean their entire relationship with God upon the Mosaic laws. This is the foundation that I have to be able to walk into relationship with God. The, the Mosaic laws to them had become kind of like a ladder that you try to climb to try to reach, attain righteousness. And Paul has already said in Romans that the, the law was never intended to be a ladder that we use to reach righteousness. Instead, the law was more like an x-ray machine where we go into the dentist's office and they use those x-rays to show us all the cavities, all of the, the corruption that we have in ourselves so that we recognize just how badly we need to see the dentist, in this case, just how badly we need a savior. So the law was never intended to be the ladder that we climbed to righteousness. It was a spotlight showing us just how desperately we needed a Savior to save us. So that it would force us, it would impel us, it would compel us into the arms of Jesus Christ. And the Jews recognized perhaps that Jesus was Savior and Lord, and they accepted him as that. But even in the shadow of the cross, they were having a really, really hard time letting go of that ladder. They didn't recognize that Jesus plus nothing leads to our standing with God. They thought Jesus plus the kosher laws, I can't let go of those things. Jesus plus the Sabbath, I can't let go of that. Jesus plus all of these holy days, that I can't let go of those things. Now, is it wrong for us to limit what we eat out of respect to God or to observe certain days and actually practice things like the Sabbath in our life? Is it wrong? Absolutely not. In fact, those are very healthy things to incorporate into our lives. And I hope that we are keeping the Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. And just having days of rest, we are designed not to go seven days a week. However... If you begin to think that your standing with God is dependent upon keeping those things, and if you don't observe that perfectly, that you are somehow no longer going to be called a son or daughter of God, that is when we could say that your faith is probably weak because your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ is not secure. Does that make sense? And so Paul is looking to the Jewish Christians and going, guys, Yes, those things are valuable, but they are not crucial for your identity as Christ followers and as sons and daughters of God. But then he turns right at the very outset to all the Gentile believers and he says, guys, you whose faith is strong in Jesus should not look down and judge those whose faith is weaker. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables because they might be terrified that it was not sacrificed in a kosher manner. They might be scared that perhaps that meat that's being sold in the marketplace was actually used for a pagan ritual prior to and then being sold because it's extra. They're like, well, I'm not going to eat anything that could have been sullied by a pagan sacrifice. And Paul's going, listen, it's meat. You didn't participate in that pagan sacrifice. Not a big deal. However... You know, those of you who are willing to eat the meat and willing to buy it, don't look down upon those who are. So one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. 
I find that this same kind of attitude, this same kind of contempt for people who are different from me, it totally creeps in. I mean, things I've already kind of showed my hand sometimes with, with the bickering that we have about which translation. I have my preference simply because this is the one I was raised with. But I recognize a lot of you guys have actually been raised with the King James Version. That's where you memorize stuff. And to you, it's near and dear and beautiful. And so for me to look down upon somebody because they prefer that, or somebody who reads the New Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, or even the Message, if I were to look down upon you because we have chosen different translations to kind of do our, our studying and our worship out of, I'm just being arrogant. Or, you know, again, having gone up to that church, I totally recognized my attitude, my almost sitting in judgment on this church that was so into the rock music and the lights flashing and the, the, the fog machine going. And I'll tell you, the younger generation was there. And they were loving it. Whereas I'm going, this is hurting my ears and I can feel the concussion in my chest and I'm not going to be able to hear any. I was almost one of those people who went and asked for earplugs. That's pathetic. I'm sorry. But probably the, the, the number one time that I recognize that I, ha- I carry around within me an arrogant mindset was when I was in, in Israel. I was actually walking through the old city of Jerusalem. And this was the day that I was just kind of, I went with a couple of friends, but I was just on my own that day wandering through the old city of Jerusalem. And I wandered into the Holy Sepulcher, which is perhaps for, for Catholic Christians, the single most sacred spot in all of Israel. Certainly in Jerusalem. And here's the reason why. It is the spot that they believe, through tradition, that Jesus Christ was both crucified and then ultimately buried. And they believe that they built a church up over it. Now, whether that's actually the spot, because there's some other places that suggest that they are, whether that's the spot or not, whatever. This is where they traditionally hold that Jesus died and was buried. And so they treat it with absolute sacredness. They built this massive cathedral over it. And right when I walked in, my Western attitude, my Protestant Christian attitude just totally kind of reared its head and the hackles on my back went up because there's just, it's ornate, there's gold leaf everywhere, there's all of these things hanging from the walls and stuff and I was just like, what on earth is going, all this iconography and then right in the very middle there was this large crowd of, crowd of people around this square stone. Like, what's going on? And it was this like flat square stone right down in the bottom. And there's a little placard that said, this is where they believe that Jesus' body was laying after he was taken off the cross and where they began to wrap him up. And the ladies ministered to his body. And so it's become a sacred place. And there were people there laying down and kissing the stone and putting their hands on the stone and praying. There was one woman I saw who walked out of the gift shop with this bag full of candles and pours it out on the stone and is rolling it as if that's going to impart some sort of blessing. And I'm going... Ah, and then I find out that they had to actually replace that stone because the old one got worn out, and so it's not even the old stone. And I'm just going, oh, these silly people, right? My arrogant attitude just starts kind of kicking up a little bit. Then I walk a little bit further into the, this sacred, sacred place. And here is the place where they believe that Jesus' body was laying, where the, the cave used to be that he was placed in there, in the tomb. And there's this line that wraps around the thing three or four times. It was probably like an hour long. And I'm going... Are you kidding me? Is this spiritual Disneyland? What is going on? Can I get a fast pass somewhere? And then I see some guy walking around dressed like Jesus, right? He's got long flowing hair. He's got this threadbare robe. He doesn't even have shoes on. He's walking around. And I'm, my attitude 
towards this whole place and this whole group of people that would worship in this way just went off. And, and let me just tell you, I didn't even recognize my attitude and my arrogance until God put me into a place where that guy who was dressed like Jesus happened to be right there and we got into a conversation. And it turns out this guy is not a Jesus impersonator. Instead, he's somebody who takes Scripture seriously about following in his master's footsteps. And he said, I felt the call early on to go wherever the Spirit led me, and so that's exactly what I do. I go where the Spirit leads. A couple months ago, I was in a different country altogether, and the Spirit has led me here. He's even provided my transportation to get me here. And I trust the Spirit's provision for everything, for what I'm going to eat, for where I'm going to sleep, for what I'm going to wear. Whatever he provides, that's what I use. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. He goes, yeah, I, I have seen God use me in so many ways. And I'm just here to go, God, how, whatever you want, I am your man. Use me to minister to other people. Just yesterday, the, the, the nuns at this particular place invited me in for a meal. And then the, 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 the brothers over at this you know, place invited me to sleep there. So that's where I've been staying the last couple of days. And I'm like, that's amazing. Can I give you some money? He goes, I don't touch money. I don't need it. I have no, no reason for it. I just trust God to provide, and he always has. And there's a part of me that just went, oh, my gosh, this guy's faith. makes. Just, I want that type of intimate relationship where I see God provide in that sort of way. Now, I don't want to be completely dependent. It would be crazy. But I want what he's got. And then I realized, wait a minute, this guy's Catholic. He is... He is one of this group of people that I have been sitting in judgment upon, looking down upon because they worship God differently from me. And in that moment, God said, Eric, the spirit in me goes, Eric, why do you think that just because you are a 30-something white Anglo-Saxon Protestant kid that grew up in America that you are automatically right in your perspective on God and everybody else is, is wrong whenever they disagree with you. What makes you think you have a monopoly on the right answer? What an arrogant mindset. Now, actually, that's probably more my tone of voice and God was a lot more gentle. That, that was kind of like how I heard it. It's like, wow, I'm really being arrogant right now. There was no, when I, when I heard like the Spirit place it on my heart, there was no anger at all in it. It was gentle, but I got the point. You're really, you're really being arrogant right now. Do you want to rethink perhaps your attitude towards this whole thing? And the rest of my time that day in, in Jerusalem was totally different because I began to see it with different eyes. But this is the point. When we begin to think that wherever I disagree with someone else, I am automatically right and they are automatically wrong. That's when arrogance creeps in. That's where we become divisive, judgmental. And the body of Christ that is called by his name, that has been washed in the blood of Jesus, is torn apart. And Paul basically says, who do you think you are to sit in judgment and think that it's your place to critique and condemn other people? Because they somehow disagree with you about a debatable matter. By the way, I'm talking about debatable matters. Areas that are gray, not the black and white, because there are plenty of things in Scripture that are black and white. We'll talk about those in just a few minutes, but I don't want us to convolute this to mean that, any, that it's all kind of relative and that whatever we think about God is true. That's not true. Scripture is very clear on a lot of things. We're talking about those areas that are debatable. 
So, verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. And whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Here's the point Paul is making right here. Jesus Christ died for our sins, covered us in his blood. And that is wonderful news. And so we're free. We're free from condemnation. We're free from the separation that sin causes between us and our Father in heaven. Prodigals are called sons and daughters. Sinners are declared to be saints because of what Jesus did. However, just because we're free does not mean that we can live any way that we want. We may be free, but we also need to submit to our Lord and our Master. We need to allow Him ultimately to be the captain of our ships. We don't just call Jesus our Savior. We call him our Lord. But I hope that it's more than just lip service. I hope that we actually allow him to be the Lord, that we actually say, God, here's my life. Jesus, show me how to live. Holy Spirit, guide me each step. So although I plan my path, you are ultimately the one who directs my steps. None of us lives to ourselves alone, and none of us dies to ourselves alone. And for this reason... Verse 9, for this reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. That our lives, we, were, we are not our own. We were bought at a price. And that price was Jesus. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. Therefore, we are called to honor God with our bodies, with our minds, with our lives, with our resources, with our relationships, with our jobs, with our goals and our dreams, even with our fears and our failures. We are called to honor God and to be his representatives. You then, who were bought at a price, you who have been forgiven of so much, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we are all going to stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves before God. So, in light of the fact that we're all going to stand before God's judgment seat and say, God, here I am, and our whole lives are going to be laid bare, despite the fact that we, or in light of the fact that He is our Lord, He is our judge, He is ultimately the one who is going to cause us to stand or fall, it is not our place to look at our brother or our sister and say, you are a sinner and God has no place for you, or there is, you are outside of the pale of Christianity. That's not our place. Now, can we confront and convict and all those kind of things? Sure. In love, with humility, recognizing that we are probably being hypocritical because there's probably a massive log in our own eye. So we need to be careful how we do it. But it is not our place to sit in judgment and have contempt for our brothers and sisters over debatable matters. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment with one another. Instead, let us make up our minds not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. 
I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Let me stop there for just a moment. Because we've been talking about gray matters. We've been talking about our actions potentially having destructive effects on our brothers and sisters. And I want to ask the question, well, how? How does that work? How could my actions potentially bring another brother or sister down? Before I answer that, let's step back and ask the question, what would that look like for the Jewish and Gentile Christians living together? How would perhaps the Gentile Christians' freedom bring destruction to a Jewish brother who has been raised up under the Mosaic laws and stuff? So think about this for a moment. You've got a Gentile Christian who does not have those, those kosher laws kind of imprinted upon his heart. It's not something that impinges upon his ability to worship God. He's he's just never had to worry about that. And so for him, he goes, I can eat anything in the marketplace. I don't care if this was sacrificed in a kosher manner. I don't care if it was even sacrificed at a pagan temple before this and is now being sold here. Because at the end of the day, I didn't worship that, that. I wasn't part of that pagan ceremony. I don't worry about kosher laws. Jesus' blood cleansed me. I'm a son or daughter of God. Done. End of story. But then you have a Jewish man or woman who's been raised with these kosher laws watching a Gentile flaunting their freedom and one of two things might happen. One, that Jewish brother or sister might go, well, they're doing it. Maybe it makes it okay. And then they might be encouraged to take part. And Paul says, basically, anything in your mind that you consider to be unclean and your, your conscience is telling you, don't do it, don't do it. Even if everybody else says it's perfectly okay. That would be like my son Grayson being coming convinced in his mind that that little rhyme that kids say, step on a crack, break your mother's back, is true. What if Grayson was convinced? I realize this is silly, but go with me. What if Grayson was convinced that if he stepped on a crack, it would break his mother's back? But he sees all of his friends stepping on cracks intentionally. Oh, that's funny, Grayson, and they're stomping on cracks. And what if in that moment, Grayson goes, well, they're doing it. We all know that that would have no impact on Kathy, physically. But in Grayson's heart, he doesn't know that. In his mind, he's thinking, I am hurting my mother by doing this, but I will do it anyway. And in that moment, my son has sinned against my wife. He may not physically hurt her, but his heart is sinning against her. Do you see how that works? And in the same way, I've got nothing from you, so I'm just going to take that as a complete agreement that you are totally following me. In the same way, Paul is saying, listen, any time that you in your head don't feel confident that you have freedom to do that, then don't do it. Because to act on that impulse, even when you don't feel like it's okay, is to ultimately sin against God. Even if it does absolutely no damage physically, it will affect your relationship with Him. It will affect your intimacy with Him. You'll be sinning. And so Paul says, don't do it. 
But what if, so, so one response that might happen, one reason why the, the Gentile Christian in their freedom might actually impact the Jewish brothers or sisters is they're basically getting carte blanche freedom. Come on, we're doing this. Let's all eat this. We're going to have a party. Come on over. And they're like, guys, I don't feel comfortable. Oh, come on. Are you kidding me? There's no issues with this. We got no problem. And they just kind of flaunt their freedom. And Paul says, do not use your freedom in such a way that people will actually look at your freedom and go, that's evil. They are sinning. That is wrong. And it'll push them away. Or, or it might push them to actually sin against their own consciences. That's one response. The other response is, what if those Jewish brothers or sisters saw those Gentile Christians eating in that way or, or just completely disregarding the Sabbath or other holy days? And they went, these guys have zero respect for our Father in heaven. They, what they are doing is absolutely abhorrent. And they have no regard whatsoever. In fact, it is so ridiculous that if that's what it means to be a Christ follower, I want nothing to do with it. I'm going back to Judaism. Because at least there, there's respect for our Father in heaven. And can you see how perhaps a Gentile Christian exercising their freedom could actually hinder somebody else's relationship with God? Could actually drive them away from the only way to the Father in heaven? Because that probably is what was happening in a lot of instances. Is Gentile freedom was becoming a major impediment to Jewish intimacy with God because they were seeing these actions and seeing the way that they flaunted their freedom and probably were just resting on cheap grace. They went, forget it. This is ridiculous. What a farce being a Christ follower is. And so Paul says, listen, you do not have the freedom to act any way that you want. Because if your actions ultimately cause a brother or sister to stumble, then you are not acting in love. I don't have a problem with drunkenness. I, I'm not one of those guys who, who just drinks until I get drunk. So therefore, I don't have a problem with drinking a little bit of alcohol every once in a while. Wine, whenever. You know, It's not an issue because it always stops at maybe a glass, maybe half a glass, but pretty much not beyond that. But I've got friends who don't know where that line is. So when I'm hanging out with those friends, I am not going to exercise my freedom to have a glass of wine because to do so may tacitly say something in their mind of, hey, this is no problem, and, 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 and perpetuate a problem that they may have that could become ultimately a major impediment, and not only relationally with one another, but in, in their lives and their relationship with God. And I, by the way, am not somebody to sit in judgment upon them. Who am I to sit in judgment? I've got my own issues that I struggle with. Okay? I am not about to look at them and go, oh, you weak person, because I would be a hypocrite the moment that I started casting judgment on somebody. We each have our own stuff. But in love, it would not be loving for me to flaunt my freedom in front of somebody who struggles in that area. And Paul is simply saying, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Make every effort to live in such a way that you are building up your brothers and sisters and are, are perpetuating unity. Because there are all of these play tectonic fissures going on within the church. And if you just run roughshod over people, if you live any way that you want, there are going to be massive upheavals and this church is going to tear itself apart at the seams. 
So let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. It's not worth it. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or your sister to fall. So you may be free, but don't flaunt your freedom in such a way that you forget that you are also a slave. Slave to Jesus Christ. You're no longer enslaved to your sins. You're no longer enslaved to the fear that you have fallen beyond God's grace. But you have submitted yourself intentionally to Jesus' lordship. You have traded one master for another, your flesh for Jesus. So live like that's true. So it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep keep them between yourselves and God, okay? What you feel like your master is convicting you of, the, the gray areas where you land on it, okay, hold on to that. Live out of that. Operate by that. But do it recognizing that there are a lot of people around you and the actions that you choose will impact them. So do it with love. Verse 23, but whoever... I'm sorry, I didn't finish 22. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, who lives in the freedom and rests in Jesus Christ and finds your identity in the fact that you are a son or daughter of God, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But whoever has doubts, whoever's conscience is saying, hold on, wait a minute, don't go there, don't do that. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, I want to I say one thing that I totally missed and that is we're talking about gray areas, but there are plenty of black and white areas in Scripture because the argument that if my conscience says this is wrong, run from it, then for you it is wrong. That works only one direction. You can't flip that whole paradigm around and go the opposite direction. That if your conscience says this isn't wrong, it isn't wrong. Because there are plenty of things that Jesus Christ warns us against and warns us to run from. There are plenty of things that Scripture is very black and white on that regardless of whether we consider it to be a sin or not, still makes it a sin. The Bible is very clear. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That's black and white. There's no arguing with that. The question becomes, well, where does alcohol play out in that? We might say, well, I have no problem with, with you know, my lustful thoughts as long as I'm not acting on it, right? I have no problem watching pornography so long as I'm not cheating on my wife. Jesus himself said, if you look at a woman lustfully, it's as if you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Paul put it this way. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And our mind is a powerful thing. So for me to say I can just live any way I want in here is to specifically ignore Scripture. It doesn't even matter if the Supreme Court says it's okay and if our society begins to celebrate it. That does not tacitly make it okay. Okay, amen. St. Augustine put it this way. I love this. St. Augustine said, right, and we actually have this one. St. Augustine said, right is right. Maybe we have it. Maybe we don't. 
Are you training Robin right now? That is awesome. No wonder it took a while. It's the wrong color. It's not nautical theme. She's like, it's green. How do we change the color before I throw it up there? That clashes. I'm going to pay for that one. St. Augustine said it this way. Right is right even if no one is doing it. Wrong is wrong even if everyone is doing it. There are black and white issues that we cannot disregard simply because our own conscience has been so worked on this thing that it's developed a callus and we're numb to it. And our society has developed a lot, a lot of calluses. And there are a lot of things that are perfectly celebrated in our society that our God says, run from this. This does not build you up. If anything, this will tear at the fabric of your relationships. This will tear at the fabric of your ability to hear my voice. Run. Sadly, what we celebrate will ultimately become the norm. And our society celebrates a lot of things that Scripture specifically says, run from this. And so we cannot... Just say, I'm going to listen to society rather than this. If we call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, then this ultimately needs to become what we live by. We need to submit our lives to it. Last thing. Can we throw up that last quote I've got? I love this by Rupert Malin, whatever, that last name. By Rupert. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. So in the, in the black and whites, in the things that are core, we need to have unity in those things. The things like the gospel message, that is the core of our unity. That we are sinners who desperately need a Savior. That God has done everything that needs to be done by sending Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. End of story. And we can submit our lives and God welcomes us home like that father to the, does the prodigal son. With joy. doesn't matter how far you've run. You have a father who loves you and has done everything that he needs to be done in order to make you right with Him. That's the gospel message. And that is the essential thing that we need to have unity in. In the non-essentials, in the debatable points, we need to have liberty. The fact that somebody has been baptized as an infant in sprinkling and they're doing life with somebody who's been baptized as an adult or maybe even somebody who has not yet been baptized and we're saying we can all worship God together and we are all in process and we all have our things that we're working on. Somebody who uses baby-wise, somebody who does attachment parenting, somebody who is a Republican can do life with somebody who is a Democrat, somebody who, you know, you fill in the blank. In all of these areas, somebody who is a Dodger fan can actually worship with somebody who's an Angel fan. Shocking! Raider fans, I'm sorry, you are not welcome. Because there's still some hypocrisy in me, but whatever. I'm just playing. You see the point here. This is like one big tent. And the core of that pole that holds the tent up is the gospel. That is our core. That cannot be questioned. That cannot be undermined. Because the moment that gets undermined, the entire tent falls down. And then there's this massive tent and there are people from all different walks of life, all different colors, all different theological bents 
Some people from a Reformed background, some people from a Catholic background, some people from an evangelical background, some people who don't even necessarily believe in God until they came face to face with Jesus Christ. Some people who are Muslim who have had visions of Jesus Christ saying, I died for you and have given their life and sacrificed far more than we could ever possibly fathom. And under the banner of Jesus Christ, we have all of these people from all these disparate walks of life coming together and saying, I am a son or daughter of God. And so we call one another brothers and sisters, despite the fact that we still live our lives slightly different, despite the fact that we still have different values that cause us to make different choices. Some of us like TVN, others run when it's on and we get out of the room as quickly as we can. That's just the reality of living life Together, we're different people. And we cannot sit in judgment and arrogance and condemnation towards those in these disputable matters. So may we keep the gospel message central and may we learn to love one another because the world will know we are his disciples by the way we love one another. So to finish this quote, in essentials, unity, that tent pole, cannot be questioned. Or at least it cannot be undermined. In non-essentials, liberty. Let us learn to live with one another's differences. And in all things, charity. Let's love one another. Because if we have not love, it doesn't matter how strong your theology is. It doesn't matter how much you do, how much money you give. It doesn't matter because it's nothing without love. Because it's love that ultimately binds us together. All right, let's pray. Go ahead and close in worship. Father, I thank you so much for loving us. Jesus, I thank you for dying for us so that our standing with you, Father, is not based upon our own inability to live righteously, but is based upon what you've already done for us. And so we come before you as imperfect people in progress and say, have your way with us. Here I am. God, would you give us the wisdom to know how how to lay down our petty differences, how to to embrace our brothers and sisters who have different perspectives than us, how to even do life in such a way that like iron sharpening iron, we would actually sharpen one another in community because you have called us to do life together, even though we're so different. May we do it with respect. May we love as you have loved us, Jesus, in your name. Amen. One last thing before I, I... get off the stage and don't come back up. And that is on the back uh, of your outline, there, there's seven gray areas tests. This was something that I stole from somebody else because I thought it was just really, really helpful. Because there are a lot of gray areas and sometimes we go, well, is that okay? Should, is that a beneficial thing? Well, here's some tests to run. Is scripture really silent on this topic? What passages could inform my decision? Will I be mastered by this? Does it honor God with my body? Could it cause another to stumble? Is it done in faith? Would you feel comfortable doing this if you recognize that Jesus was in the room with you? Is it beneficial? Does it actually help our walk with Jesus Christ? And then finally, we close with Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. This is just a really helpful filter For you to begin to look at the things in your life that perhaps you have either been allowing in or have been going, I can't go there. And go, what what does Scripture say about this? What would God say about this? So, anyway. Thank you.